Mother of action, which makes the architect of accomplishment. And certainly the theme of repetition is one that we have this evening. Uh, There's two ways that that is true. Firstly, uh, this sermon is almost a a repeat of this morning's sermon. Uh, The Lord worked it out that way, just from a different part of the scriptures. Uh, When Tim first began looking at Revelation, it was after Romans, and Romans explained the gospel in one way. Revelation describes it in another way, and we see it here in Joshua in a narrative in another way. And the Lord obviously wants us to hear this message uh, this day, for he planned it. Uh, Me and Tim aren't that intelligent to work that out. (laughs) But the other way that we have repetition here, and I gave this uh, challenge uh, when I sent out the order of service, is that you'll see a number of phrases throughout the passage this evening that are repeated over and over again. So in a moment, as we come to the Bible reading, see if you can spot, because uh, it's a long uh, passage, what, uh, what phrases are repeated over and over. Because when the writers of the Bible put it together, often you'll see repetition, and it's there to teach us uh, the main point of a passage. That's why it's repeated. Rep- repetition is the mother of learning. And so here, in this passage, we see phrases repeated that help us to understand the big picture. Because here, there's lots of kings and lots of cities, and we can get really bogged down if we wanted to in those, and sometimes getting bogged down can miss the big picture. So I want us to see the big picture of what's going on here in Joshua this evening. We left uh, Joshua last time uh, in the middle of chapter 10. Joshua has just defeated five kings that had attacked Gibeon, who when we read chapter 9 we learnt was uh, the new ally uh, of Israel. Uh, Tim reminded us how the victories and the judgments here foreshadow God's great and final victory through the New Testament Joshua Jesus, whose name, as we've said before, means the same, uh, God saves, and enables us to get into the promised land, which for us, of course, is, is heaven. And we need to bear this big picture in mind because here we're going to read of battle after battle and king after king being, and people after people being destroyed. And in chapters 10 to 12, we see uh, the final battles in the book. And after this, we see the allocation of the land. And here, as we read, we're going to see that there's still lots for Israel to do. So I'm going to ask um, if Stuart and Tom would come. They're going to read uh, the passage for us. We're going to begin in Joshua chapter 10 at verse 28. And Stuart's going to read to the end of chapter 10. And then Tom is going to read for us uh, the whole of chapter 11. So hopefully by now you've found that in your Bible. And let's read God's word together. That day Joshua took Makeda... He put, its city, he put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors and he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makeda to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city into the hand, into, and its king into, the hand of, into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it Joshua put to the sword. 
He left no survivors there, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Libna to Lachish. He took up positions against it and attacked it. The Lord gave Lachish into Israel's hands, and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Giza, came up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Lachish to Eglon. They took up positions against it and attacked it. They captured it that same day and put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword together with its kings and its villages and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just, just as at Eglon. They totally destroyed, totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. They, they took the city, its king and its villages, and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king as they had done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord God, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth-dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites, in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon, in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops, and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came out against them suddenly at the waters of Merom, and attacked them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to Greater Sidon, to Mivrafoth Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east, until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. 
At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed, and he burned up Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities on their mount, built on the mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and the livestock of these cities. But all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Balgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. What we're going to do is, first of all, I want to explain what was going on in the passage, and then we're going to pick out the big picture points uh, of, of this reading, those bits that I said to look out for that I repeated. So when we, let's begin in chapter 10. I've got a map to help us with chapter 10. I couldn't find a good one that was helpful for chapter 11. But in chapter 10, you can see on the map uh, the, the southern campaign that the, that the Israelites uh, waged. The bits, I know it's not that clear, but if you can see the colours, the bits in green we looked at last, uh, last time, uh, at the beginning of chapter 10, and the bits in yellow are the bits that we see in this passage today. So they started today from this uh, reading in Makadar, 
they went down to Libna, to Lachish, to Eglon, to Hebron, and then to Debir. After which, verse 40 tells us that the whole southern region was subdued before they went back home to Gilgal at the top of the map. So after they'd finished, they went to, to Gilgal. And we read here one military victory after another. Each city that is moved to, though, has a similar pattern, although not identical, similar. So Joshua and Israel go up and they fight. They initiate an attack and then they have complete victory. The phrase, they left no survivors, is repeated for every battle in chapter 10 except for Eglon, where instead it just says they totally destroyed everyone in it, which isn't much difference really. So we see their complete total victory in all those battles that Israel go against in that southern campaign. And it appears this southern campaign was a quick campaign because it says in verse 42 that it was done within one campaign. So the the idea is that it was, was quick. They did this and then they went back to Gilgal. Now chapter 11 is the northern campaign. And chapter 11 is similar to the very beginning of chapter 10 with a coalition against Israel. Whereas in chapter 10, Adonai Zedek had a coalition against the Gibeonites, of which Israel were tied to attack, uh, or tied to help. This time there's a direct attack rather than an indirect attack against Israel. And this king Jabin, king of Hazor, the main city up there makes this, this grand coalition. And it's a big coalition. We read that the army was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And it includes people not just in Palestine, but outside as well, empires uh, like the Hittites. And they're numerically superior to Israel, but also technologically superior to Israel because they have what at the time was the latest in military technology, the horse and chariot. But Israel win this battle by hamstringing the horses and burning the chariots, meaning that the most uh, technological weapons they have are useless. And as in the previous chapter, the victory is total. Uh, In verse 14, they didn't spare anyone that breathed. They took the plunder. They had complete victory. And Hazor, whose king Jabin had made the coalition, was totally destroyed as a city, and it, and it was burned. The city itself was burned to the ground. It didn't happen to every city, but Hazor was important, but, and some of the other cities they would have had to live in, so they didn't want to completely uh, burn up all the cities. And then verse 17 of chapter 11 gives a description of the land uh, that was taken uh, from Mount Halak, which is in the south, to Mount Hermon in the north. But verse 18 tells us that the northern campaign was not quick. It says they campaigned a long, uh, a long time. And some commentators believe that this long time was about seven years because Caleb, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 2, was 78 when he entered into Canaan. And in Joshua 14, we read he was 85 when he entered into Hebron. So some believe that it's seven years It doesn't say here exactly, but it was a long time. It wasn't one quick campaign. And then in verse 21 of chapter 11, uh, we read that they defeated the Anakites. If you remember the Anakites, uh, they're in Numbers chapter 13. They're a giant people. And they were the ones that the Israelites were so scared of, they didn't initially go in 
to attack uh, the promised land. And they were too scared, except for Joshua and Caleb. But here, the Anakites, they're they're, um, totally destroyed in their towns, except uh, for Gath, Gaza, and Ashdod. Of course, Gath was where Goliath came from. Those towns did cause problems later on. Uh, But the Anakites, these giants that were really scary, uh, were defeated. And then, in verse 23, we have the summary. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions, and then the land had rest from war. And so we come to the end of these big battles. Now that was a really quick overview. Um, you can, if you, I would encourage you, in fact, when you read this, uh, to, to get a Bible atlas. It helps to see where they went and things like that. So get a good Bible atlas. It will help you to understand what's going on. But what is the repetition? Well, there's two major points of repetition, and they can be summarized in two main points. One, the Lord is the one that gives victory. It often says, the Lord gave it into their hands. And secondly, resisting the Lord is futile. It often says, there were no survivors. They totally, totally destroyed everyone in it. And we see the same today for us. The victory that we have as Christians belongs to the Lord. The Lord gives us victory. The Lord gives us salvation. And just as what it was then, today, resisting God in the end is futile. It's pointless because God has the victory. So we're going to focus by going through the passage in a, few, in a couple of sweeps how we get those two points out. So the first, um, the first one there, the Lord is the one who gives victory. Now within uh, these chapters, there are six separate occasions where the writer tells us specifically that it's God who gives the victory. So let's look at these verses. First of all, so hopefully if you've got a, you need a Bible, if you, if you can look to someone next to you if you haven't got one, it will really help if you had a Bible in your hand to, to, to go through this. Chapter 10 and verse 30, okay, that's where we're going to begin. Chapter 10, verse 30, it says, The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. That was talking about the city of Libna. And then we go down to verse 32. We read the same as Lashish. Chapter 10, verse 32, The Lord gave Lashish into Israel's hand, and Joshua took it on the second day. So the Lord gave it into their hand. Go down to chapter 10, verse 42. It says there, all these kings that we've just read about in chapter 10 and their lands, Joshua conquered in one campaign. Why? How did he do it? Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And then we come to chapter 11, we see the same pattern. Look at chapter 11, verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them, because this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their, chariot, their horses and burn their chariots. Go down to verse 8 of chapter 11. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. And then finally, as the summary occurs, if you go down to chapter 11, verse 20, after those battles, it says, For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel. 
so that he might, he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you can see the repetition there, can't you? It was the Lord that gave them into their hands. It was the Lord that gave the victory. I mean, it was even the Lord that gave the idea to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. But this last verse, chapter 11, verse 20, is an interesting verse, isn't it? It's one of those verses that are hard for us to to read and to really grasp. It says, for it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel. We read something very similar about Pharaoh, don't we, in Romans chapter 9 and verses 17 and 18. Romans chapter 9 verses 17 and 18. It says, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. God's purpose there in Romans 9 for hardening people's hearts is for his own glory, to display his power. God is is glorified when his power is displayed and his name is to be proclaimed in all the earth as the earth sees his power at work. And therefore it's God that has the victory here because it's God who hardens the hearts of those Canaanites so so that they fight against his will. And it says in verse 20 that so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so that's where we look at Romans and it says, the Lord has mercy on whom he would have mercy. It's difficult, isn't it? They're hard verses to read. But we always have to remember that we deserve what they received. We deserve what they received. But God has been merciful to us. Not by any righteousness of our own, but just because he has mercy. That's what the the Bible tells us. The defeat of these Canaanites was down to God's sovereign will and purpose to bring glory to his name. And as his people, don't we read this in one sense, this is where the the sweet and the bitter comes in, in, in a sweet way, and think, wow, God gives victory here. God is with his people. When I'm on God's side, when I'm following God, he gives me victory, he helps me. It's wonderful, isn't it, to to know that God is is with us. And even uh, as well as knowing the theology, there's practical help here, isn't there? The Lord gave even this military strategy. He was the one that said, hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. These were the the latest military weapons. They would have been frightening to see. But God says, well, just just hamstring the horses and and burn the chariots. And as his people, we we fight in God's kingdom army, don't we, in order uh, to proclaim the gospel. That's a battle, isn't it? To proclaim the good news of Jesus. We have a fight, a war against sin in our lives. It's ultimately been won by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we still battle, don't we, with it in our lives. We battle to live Godly lives in a fallen world. But God is the one who gives us victory. 
And it's to God who we give the glory, isn't it? Joshua was given battle plans. And so are we. We're given his word, which as we heard this morning, we are to take and eat and digest, to to meditate on, and ultimately to live out in our day-to-day lives. But becoming a bit more practical again, we see in this passage lots of practical points that we can apply if we understand that God is in control. So the point here is God is in control. He rules and he reigns over his kingdom, over his people. All victory, all glory goes to God. So what does, how do we apply this practically? Well, first of all, the first practical thing uh, is, uh, is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look at chapter 11 and verse 6. It says, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. This was the, the grand coalition. As numerous as the sand on the seashore, this big army that was frightening to behold. What does God say? Don't be afraid of them, Joshua. Why? Because by this time tomorrow, I, I will hand them over. All of them slain to Israel. And then he tells them to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. We have no need to fear if God is in control in any situation. As we've thought about proclaiming the gospel, it's a fearful thing, isn't it, to tell a non-Christian who we know is going to be hostile the gospel. Even though it's good news, it's hard, isn't it, to proclaim that good news. But we don't need to be afraid because God's in control. We can fear and be, we can be afraid of the circumstances that come in our lives. Living in a fallen world is hard and it's frightening sometimes. But we don't need to be afraid. Nothing happens that is outside of God's sovereign control. He doesn't ever say, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. That never happens with God. He knows everything from the beginning to the end and is in control of all things. If God wasn't in control, I have every reason to fear. But my Bible tells me God is in control. So I have no reason to fear. And as we uh, give our requests to God, he gives us peace that passes understanding. Not fear, but peace that passes understanding as we bring those things that, that would make us fear before his throne. He gives us peace. We don't need to be afraid. Secondly, because God's in control, we should obey his commands. Notice how often it's repeated again and again that Joshua followed the commands that God gave him. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 40. It says, So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, Uh, The Negev, the western foothills and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings, he left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Chapter 11, verse 9. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burnt their chariots. Chapter 11, verse 12. Joshua took all the royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Then go down to chapter 11, verse 15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Again and again, it's repeated, Joshua obeyed the Lord. And if God is in control, and we trust God knows what he's doing, how foolish 
are we when we disobey God? But notice here, Joshua didn't. He left nothing undone. He didn't just obey the bits that he liked. He obeyed all of it. He left nothing undone. You know, there's some scriptures that we may find really easy to obey. But there's some scriptures that are hard, aren't they? The situations that come in our lives where the easy route seems to be to do the wrong thing. But Joshua left nothing undone. He did what was right. He obeyed the Lord. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If you, if you think about things rationally, it makes sense. God knows everything. He knows what he's doing. He knows the beginning from the end. And we think, well, I'll disobey. Well, how foolish are we to do that? And we, we do it. I do. But it doesn't make sense to disobey, really, does it? When we know that God is in control of all things. And if we're disobeying God's word, our Christian lives are miserable. I, I, I know that the devil lies to me and says, you'll be happy if you do this, but when I do it, I'm miserable. That's the, the lie of sin. It always turns out to be a lie, because sin makes us miserable. And Joshua here is, is a picture of the New Testament Joshua, Jesus, who said when he was faced with the cross, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. That's what Jesus said. He followed his Father's will all the way to the cross where he paid for our sin. Third uh, practical application, be prepared for the long haul. Look at chapter 11, verse 18. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Some battles, like the, the first campaign, are quick. Sometimes we battle for the whole of our lives. Paul in the New Testament had his thorn in the flesh that he prayed God would take away, but God didn't. He had to fight that his, 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 his whole life, it seems. But we have to be prepared to battle for the long haul. Sometimes things don't go away. Sometimes things are here to stay, and they're hard things. Illnesses, for example. We, have, we can get sick in ways that don't go away. We don't get healed. We battle it for the long haul. But God is in control, isn't he? God is in control. It's true of gospel ministry. We can share the gospel again and again and again, and they're just not getting it. But gospel ministry is for the long haul. We keep going until God calls us home. Remember, the response that we must always have is faithfulness. Faithfulness till the end. Fourthly, be prepared for rejection. Remember chapter 11, verse 20, that God hardened their hearts. He hardened their hearts. And we meet people, don't we, that have hard, hard hearts. I remember when we were in Devon, and uh, Josh Vroom was sitting with a, a boy, and he came, Josh came to me and he said, this, this boy doesn't understand that he's done, some, done things wrong. He says he doesn't, he won't, he, I can't explain to him. So I went and I spoke to the boy. And uh, it was true. He, he said, you cannot tell me I've done wrong. You cannot tell me I've done wrong. I am not a sinner. That's a hard heart. A hard heart. We speak to people and tell them about Jesus and they can look at us with 
just blank faces, as if we're, we're, we're talking some, like a fairy story. Sometimes we can face people and they can be really hostile. In fact, in John 15, Jesus tells us that the world will hate us as we proclaim the gospel. And if you've never had any opposition to the gospel, then you're not living the gospel as you ought to be. Be prepared to face rejection. It's not our job to save people. It's our job to proclaim to people. God does the saving. And you could say, well, then am I, am I wasting my time? Is it a waste of time preaching the gospel when people are rejecting it again and again? Never. No. Firstly, because it's obedience. And obedience to God is never a waste of time. But secondly, if, we're, if, they're, not, if they're not coming to faith in Christ, we're proclaiming judgment to them, aren't we? We are God's mouthpieces, either of the good news of the gospel or the judgment to come. But it's never a waste of time. But we must be prepared for rejection. It's, a, it's something I struggle with. I struggle sharing the gospel again and again. And, pe- and people just not understanding. And sometimes I think, is it me? Now sometimes I may, I could be clearer perhaps, but, but no. No, it's not. The Lord is the one who saves. I need to faithfully proclaim the good news. And the final bit of this, uh, this point, the fifth Look forward to victory. Look at the end of chapter 11 and verse 23. It says, look forward to victory. Joshua took the entire land, the entire land. Not one bit of God's promise was not available to him. And as we look at our promised land in heaven, not one promise that God has made to you and to me will fall away and fail. Not one promise of God. And then secondly, there in that verse, at the end, the land had rest from war. If we look forward to the victory to come, we can keep going in the battles we face, can't we? Because we know in the end, at the very end, there is victory. We look forward to it. We we must look forward to it. If you just keep looking down at what's going on, we're going to fall and fail and be in despair. But we look forward to heaven, don't we? We look forward to the victory, to the rest. Hebrews uh, chapter 4 tells us of the greater rest to come. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 8 and 9 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So Joshua, in the end, they didn't have complete rest. You read Judges, the next book, you'll see that. But it says in Hebrews, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We will have that rest. We will be with Jesus. We must look forward to that victory. We must look forward. Never forget that God is in control, in control of all things, of all the battles we face. We must trust the Lord. The Lord is the one who gives victory. But what about those who fight against God? And this is where that second point comes into play. Resisting God is futile. Resisting God is futile. If you take point one to be true, then point two is also true, isn't it? If God is in complete control and is saving those whom he will save, then, and, he, and he has the ultimate victory, then resisting God is, is, is futile, it's pointless. The repeated phrase, more than any other, that I read in this passage again and again, they left no survivors. 
They left no survivors. They left no survivors. They totally destroyed everyone in it. They were numerically uh, and technologically superior. God wins every time. You know, they, they, they were picking, it's like picking a fight against the sun. I'm sure in this country, most of you enjoy the sunshine. We don't get that much of it. But if you didn't, what are you going to do? You're going you're to pick up, you're going to throw something at it. You're going to put something up. The sun's going to shine. It's not going to stop. And that's like the Lord. I mean, the Bible describes the Lord last week in Psalm 84. The Lord, our God, is a sun. He's not going to be stopped. And yet people think again and again they can avoid God, resist God, attack God, and they're going to win. And in one sense, this is a comfort to God's people. Because the enemy can throw all sorts of things at us. But Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a comfort to us, isn't it? We can pray and we should pray for the persecuted church, but we must never think that they're a defeated church. God gives victory to his people. In the end, every knee will bow before King Jesus. And so as we face opposition, yes, we should expect it, but we should realize that that they cannot stop God. No one can stop God. God has victory. Resisting him is futile. And that's where, in another sense, yes, it's a comfort, but, oh, it's it's a tragedy, isn't it? This is where Tim mentioned this morning about the, the, the bittersweet. Oh, it's a, it's a comfort to know that, that I'm not wasting my time following Jesus. But it's bitter, isn't it? When you see people rejecting God. It's amazing, isn't it, that people in these passages, it never, I've read it a number of times, and it never ceases to amaze me that they continue to fight against God having seen all the the defeats of the kings before, having seen and heard of what happened at the Red Sea and of the kings uh, and the battles they faced before, and they fight against God. Do you know what the name Jabin means? The king of Hazor, the one that made this coalition, it means intelligent. And it made me think of Romans chapter 1, verse 21, professing to be wise, they became fools. It was the most unintelligent thing to do, to, to fight against God. But their hearts were hardened and they couldn't see the need to cry for mercy, not fight against Almighty God. And to us as Christians, like I said, I read this passage and I think it's crazy. I speak to non-Christians, even in my own family, and I think they're crazy. How can you not understand this? How do you not know? How can you not see? You know that experience where you, you share the gospel and they just don't get it, doesn't understand, goes over their heads, they don't care, they just think it's a hobby. It's tragic, isn't it? It's tragic because we know the truth that there are no survivors. Because this is a foreshadowing, isn't it, of hell where there are no survivors and everyone is destroyed. And you can't resist and run away from God and think that everything's going to be okay. Because in the end, that resistance is futile. 
But there is good news, isn't there? And in fact, if there was no bad news here, there would be no good news. And we need to understand the truth that Jesus saves. That's the name Jesus. God saves. And so when we understand the truth of no survivors and resistance is futile, with a passion and a fire in our bellies, we should be able to say, but Jesus saves. And yes, God is sovereign and he is in control and he hardens hearts, but that's God's role. The Bible tells us to proclaim the gospel with all that we have within us. We don't use God hardens hearts as an excuse for for not sharing the gospel. The Bible tells us over and over again, go to the world and share the gospel. And so when we know the truth of hell and the punishment for sin, we should be sharing the gospel, shouldn't we? With passion in our hearts. And perhaps there's someone here tonight who is resisting God. I would say to you, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? How can you resist God? How can you read this and see no survivors again and again and again and resist God? And I would encourage you, come to Jesus. Come and find forgiveness. Come and find life. Come and find mercy. Come and find grace. Give your life to Jesus. Because in Jesus there is rescue. We read it at the beginning. He came to rescue us. You don't have to go to hell where there's no, these no survivors. You can be with the Lord in heaven if you would come. And then we come to chapter 12. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 12 because um, it's a long chapter with a lot of names. Um, but it's a stra- it appears a strange chapter. And basically, chapter 12 is a summary of the conquest from before crossing the Jordan till the end of chapter 11. And it begins in verse 1, east of the Jordan. Now, before I read verse 1, east of the Jordan was before the book of Joshua. This was when Moses was the leader. So it says, These are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated and whose territory they took over east of the Jordan, from the Arnon Gorge to Mount Hermon, including all the eastern side of the Arabah. So it begins with those on the east of the Jordan. It talks about uh, the battles Moses led against Sion and Og. And if you remember, it was a time when God's power was displayed. You can read about it in Numbers 21. And even Rahab, the the, the Canaanite woman in Jericho, remembered the Red Sea and uh, Sion and Og. She remembered that battle. And from verse 7 onwards, we see the list of kings that were defeated on the west side of the Jordan River. This is the book of Joshua, verse, uh, chapters 1 uh, through to chapter 11. Not all of the battles fought in the book of Joshua are recorded in chapter 12, but nevertheless, there is a full record of, of the victory here. We don't read about all the battles. It doesn't mean they didn't happen. It just means the battle itself is not recorded. But all these kings were what Joshua Uh, led to victory on the east of the Jordan. Now, why does Joshua list them like this? Well, actually, in the Bible, often we can come to lists of names and we can skip over them and think, well, what's the point in that being there? But actually, there's always a good reason. If you come, for example, to the the genealogy of Christ, there's a good reason that's there. 
In both of them, it shows in two different lines that Jesus is king of the Jews. It also shows us, for example, of all the people God used to bring a saviour and all of the wretched people God used and how we can say, praise God, he uses people like that to bring uh, salvation to his people. So that there's always a reason. If you look at Genesis 5, there's another example that comes to mind. That there's a repeated phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. So you, read, you, you, can, you can see a reason there. What's the purpose here? Well, the purpose here is, uh, to, and, and it can lead us to worship, because it's a victory list. That's the, the purpose here, it's a victory list. Ancient conquerors would often have lists of defeated kings and nations to celebrate the victories. We do it today with sports. If you go a bit north of the Midlands and down into London, you can go to some football stadiums and they have like trophy rooms with, with trophies in it and lists of what they've won. <laughs> and uh, that's the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a victory list. That's what it is here. And at this point in the book, uh, we're, we're taking stock and we're, we're looking back at what God has done through his people. It's another example of chapter 4 with the stones of remembrance. Similar kind of thing. And when we looked at chapter 4, I said about uh, George Muller, who, um, who God supplied in such amazing ways, and he wrote his, uh, lists of what God had done to remind himself of God's goodness to him and provision, and how it's good for us to, to do that with, in our own lives. And we're going to do that in a moment with communion. As we come around the Lord's table, we have a reminder, again, lest we forget of what Christ has done. It's a a victory celebration, in a sense, isn't it? In the same kind of a way. But another reason it's written in the way it is, in two parts, east and west, is um, verse 6. Look at verse 6. Moses, the servant of the Lord, had conquered, and the Israelites conquered them, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to be their possession. What God did here was give, uh, they they allowed uh, those tribes to have land east of the Jordan. And as you read through, there there was a worry that they will go off on their own and be separated. But Joshua here, in in the middle of this book, is bringing those two tribes together. There's a unity around the victory celebration. And for us, we need to come together, united as God's people, and celebrate the victory that God has given to us. One church, remembering what God has done. So share testimonies together. Tell of of battles won. Talk of Christ and what he's doing in your life. Make much of Jesus. And celebrate the victory that we have in him. That's the point of chapter 12. And in a very short moment, we're going to have communion as we remember what Christ has done for us. But before we do that, we're going to sing. We've read of of battles that God's people have been fighting as they've been going into the land. And we are fighting battles as a church, aren't we, in God's kingdom. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing, O Church, Arise and put your armor on. Let's stand together before we come around the Lord's table.